Today I'm into my second teaching about Elijah, and I tell you, we have covered some powerful things. These are just some of the most uh, profound, important things that God has ever done in my life, and I pray that you are listening, paying attention, because this could revolutionize your life. It certainly has mine. So we are now talking about how that after Elijah delivered the word that God gave him to Ahab, God told him to go to the brook Cherith and he would protect him and provide for him there. He went and did what God told him to do and <clears throat> God miraculously supplied bread and flesh for him every morning and evening. But eventually the brook Cherith dr dried up. <clears throat> and this is another lesson from Elijah that your place called there, the place where God told you to go, where he's going to provide for you, it's not a static place. And it's not even a physical place. It's just obeying God. It's in relationship to Him. And you can't just seek the Lord in spurts and then get a word from God and, and do what He told you and then just forget Him. You need to be in constant communion because your place called there will change. And this happened with Elijah. It says in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8, and the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now again, if you remember in the first part of this, God didn't send Elijah's provision to where he was, but he told him to go there. I have commanded the ravens to, to feed thee there. Now he has changed the place called there, and he said, go to Zarephath, and I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So God sent him to a new place, and it's the exact same thing that happened back here in the fourth verse. In the fourth verse it says, um, or excuse me, this is verse 3, or no, it is verse 4. It says in verse 4, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. He had already spoken to the ravens. He had already commanded the provision before Elijah even had the need. Here again, he says in verse 9, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. God had already spoken to her. God had told her that she would be sustaining someone. Now, we don't know the clarity of this, whether she knew that it was Elijah she was going to sustain or if it was just that God was telling her that she was going to give to somebody else. And remember that this is when she was down to her last little bit of food. In the natural, there is no way to do this. A carnal person wouldn't have been thinking this way, wouldn't have received this, but God said He had already spoken to this woman and commanded her to sustain him there. Let me turn back over to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus spoke of this widow woman. He was in his hometown. He got up and read the scriptures about the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to uh, bring... Uh, has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He got up and read that. That was scripture. But then he sat down and he told the people, he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, I am the Messiah that has been prophesied and talked about. And the people got so mad at him and came and says, you're... Mary's son, we know your brothers and your sisters that are here, and who do you make yourself to be? 
And here's what Jesus said to them in verse 23. He said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. That's talking about Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when great famine was throughout all of the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta. That's talking about uh, Zarephath over in 1 Kings chapter 17, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And so Jesus made special mention of this woman in the way that He talked about her. He said that there was many widows in Israel, and yet God didn't send Elijah to any of them. He sent Elijah to a specific woman that was outside of the Jewish nation. She was a Gentile, and God sent Elijah to her specifically because, as it says over here, He had already spoken to this woman and commanded her to sustain Elijah. Now, this is really important. It's not like just any widow would do. It's not like Elijah could just walk up to anybody and say to them, you know, give me your little cake and God is going to multiply your food and sustain you and me throughout this entire deal. No, there was a specific person that God had spoken to. And he says here that I have commanded this widow woman. Before Elijah came across her path, God had already spoken to her. God had already commanded her to supply this need. And I tell you, this is, this is profound. God has provided your need before you ever had the need. The provision was made before the need. The supply was there. God supplied all of the food and all of the air and all of the land and everything that Adam and Eve would ever need. He supplied all of this before He created them. And this is just a principle throughout the entire Word of God that before you have the need, God has already made the supply. Now, just because God had commanded this widow woman to sustain him, did that mean that it just came to pass, that she automatically did it? Look on here. It says in verse 19, it says so, or excuse me, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. You know, we don't know a lot about this woman, but like it said over there in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said there was a specific woman. There was a specific reason that God sent Elijah to this woman. And I think one of the reasons you can see right here, this woman was down to her last little bit of food. In the natural, without something supernatural happening, this woman was going to eat it and die. And so it was one of the worst days of her life. And yet, a man walked up and said, give me a little water. And she just went to get it. And she was going to serve this man. You know, let me ask the women that are watching this. If it wasn't the worst day of your life, let's say it was the best day of your life. Let's say that you were just having a great day. And if I walk up to you and as a total stranger, I just walked up and I said, would you please give me some water? Would you go get me some water? How many of you would do that? I mean, on your best day, most of you to be something like, well, who died and made you God? There's water. You go get water yourself. 
I guarantee you, most people are not givers like this. The very fact that this woman, on the worst day of her life, where it looked like she was going to die, was asked to go do something and serve somebody else, and she was just going to go do it, that says volumes about her. This woman was a giver. This woman had a heart to give. Now, she didn't have very much to give, but she had a heart to give. And remember that God said, I have commanded this widow woman to sustain thee. So God had already spoken to her. And I'm reading some between the lines here, but I really believe this to be true, that if she was going to sustain somebody else through the drought, that means that she had to live. Her and her son had to live as well as the person she was going to sustain. And I believe that this woman was looking for and expecting a miracle. God had already spoken to her and told her that things were going to change. She just didn't know all the details. But it says clearly that God had spoken to her. And so in verse 11 it says, And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth. Now this is important. I'm going to go on and read what she said. But she said, As the Lord thy God liveth. You know, there was, uh, you could tell a person what nationality they were, were of many times by the way they dressed and uh, by the way that prophets dressed. Matter of fact, over in 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, when the messenger said that Elijah was a hairy man and girt about the loins with a girdle and stuff, the king immediately says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. The way he dressed was uh, noteworthy. So it's possible that either she knew who he was and had heard about his style and the way he dressed, or just because she recognized he was a Jew or whatever, she said, as the Lord your God liveth. Not as the Lord my God, but as the Lord your God. She was recognizing that this man was either a prophet or a Jew. Now, the Lord had already spoken to her, so she did have a relationship with the Lord, but she wasn't one of the covenant people. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Did you know, in the natural... I've heard people take, the, take this and say, this woman was just totally speaking unbelief. She had no faith whatsoever. This didn't come to pass because of any faith on her part. And you could take that statement and look at this as she said, she's just going to go fix this little bit of food and eat it, and then she's going to die. But if you put it together with verse 9, it says specifically that God had already spoken to this woman and that she commanded her that she was going to sustain someone through the drought. Either sustain Elijah or someone. She, she had this revelation from God. So I don't believe that this woman was expecting to eat this little bit and die. And some people say, well, that's what she said. Let me give you this illustration. Like I said, we're building this building up there and I need all of this money. I need $20 million to finish this um, auditorium that we're building. And let's say that we were down to a situation where I either had to stop construction or we needed $20 million. And then if I prayed and God said, I'm going to send you someone tomorrow who will give you $20 million. And so if I'm walking around and all of a sudden this person comes up and says, so how's the building going? And I just begin to tell them what's happening in the natural. 
It's not that what I'm saying is necessarily what I'm believing. This is just the situation that it is. You know, the way it is today, if we don't get $20 million, we're going to have to stop construction. And I could say that and somebody could say, well, then you aren't believing what God told you that somebody was going to give you $20 million. No, all I'm doing is just stating the fact. And the very fact that you're interested in asking, I might tell you that, and without me saying it, in my heart I would be saying, are you the one that God spoke to me about? Are you the one that's going to be giving me $20 million? Now, see, I wouldn't say that to that person, but I might tell them the situation and say, here it is in the natural. Unless we get $20 million, we're going to have to stop. And some people, see, would look at that as a statement of unbelief, but it could be just a statement of the fact, but here's what I'm believing. I'm believing God's going to use somebody. Is it you? And I believe that that's the way that this woman approached Elijah. She stated the fact. She told him what the situation was, but she had already had God tell her she was going to sustain someone through this drought. I'm not sure if she understood how it would work. I'm not sure if she had all of that, but she knew she was going to sustain somebody. And look at what Elijah said unto her. He said, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So Elijah acknowledged the physical situation, but he says, you give to me first and then make for yourself and for your son. And then he gave her a promise from God that this oil will not fail, the cruise of oil won't fail, the little bit of meal won't fail until the day that God sends rain upon the earth. He didn't just ask for something from this woman, but he gave her a promise of the Word of God and promised her that she would prosper more by giving than by keeping it all. Did you know that this makes no sense to the natural mind? The carnal mind constantly looks when a person gives as that money's just gone out of your hand. I could imagine that if they would have had, you know, a Jerusalem post back in these days, that they would have put a headline up there, Prophet takes woman's last meal, death certain. Would have been something like a headline like that. And then they would have been talking about that. This is a typical preacher. All he's doing is out to take from people. I'm telling you, Elijah wasn't taking from this woman. He was giving to this woman. And he gave her this promise. He says, if you will do this and take this step of faith, it's not going to leave your life. It's going to grow and multiply. Elijah was giving this woman uh, a guaranteed income or a guaranteed uh, food throughout this entire drought. If it hadn't have been for Elijah, this woman and her son would have died. But so, it's amazing how people look at things only in the carnal. But this woman was believing for God to do something special and she was questioning, Elijah, are you the one? And let me also go back up into verse 10. You can see this because it says, So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman, not just any widow. You know, this doesn't work for just anybody, but there, had, there was a connection. God had spoken to the woman, and now God had spoken to Elijah. And when you get two people that God has spoken to like that, and they're obeying, that is a recipe for a miracle. And so it wasn't just any widow woman. It was the widow woman was there 
gathering of sticks. Did you know, let me just put it to you this way. If you were down to your last little bit of food, and if there wasn't the social net that we have today that you can go someplace and, you know, to a food pantry, you can go get welfare, you can go do something and, and do all of this, or you have credit cards and stuff. There wasn't any of these things in this woman's life. There wasn't a social net. Nobody was going to take care of her. They were all struggling through this same drought. And unless God came through, there wasn't a government program that was going to sustain this woman. There was nothing in the natural. This was her last little bit of food on this planet. But God had spoken to her that she was going to provide food for somebody else. And if she was going to sustain them, that meant that she had to be sustained. She was believing God for a miracle. And to prove it, instead of being home depressed with the curtain, the windows closed, totally dark in there and just sitting in a corner and being depressed, or instead of being in a closet somewhere just praying and begging God for an intervention, this woman was out picking up sticks and acting like it was just like any other day. In the natural, she was just moments away from death, and yet she was acting as if it was just a normal day. And so did you know, just like I shared, that there was a place called there for Elijah, and God sent Elijah's supply there, not to where Elijah was, but there. In that same way, there was a place called there for this woman. And it wasn't sitting at home being depressed and discouraged and it wasn't in her prayer closet just praying and begging God. Her place called there was to get up and go out and get you some sticks and make a fire and you prepare this food and act like it's not your last day. Somehow or another, God is going to come through. And this woman was out doing something. Now, it wasn't spectacular. In a lot of people's opinion, she wasn't doing anything that was really, you know, noteworthy. She was just out looking for some sticks and picking up some sticks. But that was her place called there. If she had been at home in her prayer closet, did you know she wouldn't have come across Elijah's path? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that we don't pray. I am not against prayer. But I am saying that there's a lot of people that will sit there and pray. And they call it prayer. But in truth, it's just griping and complaining. They're just telling God, all of their hurts and their problems, and they're just spewing all of this stuff out. You know, Charles Capps, one time I heard him say that he was praying, and the Lord stopped him right in the middle of his prayer and said, Charles, what are you doing? And Charles says, well, I'm praying. And God told him, says, you aren't praying, you're complaining. And there's a lot of what people call prayer that's just nothing but complaining. You've been telling God about how bad it is and what the doctor says, what the banker says, what your finances say, what your husband, your wife etc. You, you've been spewing all of these things out as if God doesn't know. There's a place to pray, but it is not griping and complaining. And there is a time to get up and act like you believe that God is going to supply your needs. But there are a lot of people that won't take action. They won't do anything. They're waiting on the supply to come first. See, this woman could have been at home just praying and asking God to have somebody knock on their door, but God did not send Elijah to this woman's home. He didn't have Elijah knock on her door. This woman was there gathering sticks. Not a spectacular thing, but it was what was normal. She was going about her normal life. She was acting like she was going to live and not die. 
and she was just out there doing something. Boy, there's a lesson in this for all of us that you know what? We need to do something. There's some of you that are praying and asking God for a miracle, but what are you doing? Are you doing something? Well, I'm praying. This woman wasn't just praying. She was out doing something. There has to be something in the natural that you do. God said He would bless the work of your hands. A hundred times zero is zero. There are some people sitting there praying and asking God to supply them. They're praying that their ship will come in and they never sent a ship out. You've never given anything. You need to do something. This woman was out doing what she knew to do. And she, remember, she had this in the back of her mind that God was going to send her somebody that she was going to sustain throughout this whole drought. How is this going to happen? I don't know that she knew all of the details, but she knew. God had commanded her that she was going to sustain somebody through this whole drought. So she was out there going about her uh, business. She was out there making contact, exposing herself to people, looking for something to happen. And Elijah found her there. She was doing something. And so he says, give me a little bit of water. And I made this point, but this is an indication about what kind of person this woman was. Because on the worst day of her life in the natural, some stranger walks up and says, give me something to drink. And she just went to get it for him. That reveals that she was a giver. Most people wouldn't do this on a good day, much less a bad day. She was a giver. And then as she was going to get this water, Elijah called out to her and he says, I pray thee, bring me a morsel of bread in thine hand. And the woman turned and said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and for my son that we may eat it and die. Again, I spent a lot of time on this, but I don't believe that she was just saying that we are going to eat it and die and that that's what she was believing. She was just stating this is the way it is in the natural, but God had commanded her to sustain someone, and I believe she was stating this, not with a period at the end, but a question mark, like I'm going to do this and eat it and die, question mark, or are you the one that God told me about? Are you the one that God is sending to me that is going to supernaturally multiply my food and enable me to sustain you through this drought? I believe that that's the way that it was said. And it says that Elijah said unto her, Fear not, Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me and after make for thee and for thy son. Now he didn't just ask for her to give to him without a promise of anything. In the next verse he says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. He didn't just ask her to give. He gave her the Word of God. And this is the same Word that He gave to the king over here. The Word of God is powerful. And the Word of God promises us that if we give, Luke 6, 38, it shall be given unto us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into our bosom. And on and on you could go. He gives seed to the sower. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, verse 8. He makes all grace abound towards us so that we always, having all sufficiency, may abound unto every good work. And just on and on the promises go. Did you know Elijah was not taking from this woman? He was giving to this woman. And yet there is a prejudice against 
finances, against prosperity. Not only in the secular world, there's a prejudice against it in the body of Christ. When you go to teaching on finances, I guarantee you the average person, they just bristle up. They immediately like close their heart off. They feel like all a preacher's trying to do is get their money. Elijah wasn't taking from this woman. He was giving to this woman. I tell you, it takes the Holy Spirit to reveal this unto you because the carnal, natural mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 14. You have to receive this by the Spirit. And sad to say, most Christians are not walking in the Spirit. They're walking only by their natural mind. And when they see money leave their life, they think they're poor because of it. That might be so if you're out buying something and spending it on things that we spend money on. But when you are giving into the gospel, that money's not leaving your life. It's just entering into your future where it grows and it multiplies and it comes back to you on every wave. It is contrary to what natural reasoning thinks. You know, I was teaching at Greg Moore's church in Decatur, Texas. Greg and Janice Moore now work with me and he runs our Karis Bible College. But he taught and ministered in Decatur, Texas for, I'm not sure the length of time, but I think it's at least 20 years he was pastor of this church. And I used to go there and minister in his church. And so one year I went there and a woman came up for prayer and she was in a mental institution and had gotten a weekend pass to come out of the mental institution and go to church. And so she asked me to pray for her that God would restore her mind, that she could pass the test and that she could get released from the mental hospital. So I did. I prayed with her. And then the next year I went back and when I gave an invitation, this woman came up in front of the whole church and she says, do you remember me? And I didn't remember her. She had changed so much. She was let out of the mental institution. Her, she was back. Her mind was functioning properly and she was a changed person. I didn't even recognize her. And she says, I'm the woman you prayed for last year. So anyway, I praised God for that. And then she says, but I'm the janitor of this mental hospital and they provide room and board for me. So she says, I'm not a patient anymore. Now I'm a staff member, but I'm still in this mental institution and I'm around these people. And she says, I want a new job and a new place to live. And she came up and asked for prayer. And I had just taught on this widow of Zarephath and how that Elijah says, you give to me first and then it'll be multiplied to you. And I just taught about that when you give, it's not leaving your life. It's growing and it's multiplied. It's like planting a seed. And so I had just taught on this and I looked at that woman and I said, what do you have? Give it to me. <clears throat> and this woman went back and got her purse and she opened it up. She had a little coin purse and she counted it. And I forget the exact figure, but it was around 78 or $80. And she said, this is all the money I have until payday, 10 days away. And I said, give it to me. And she said the whole thing. And I said, the whole thing. And I put my hands out like this and she just dumped that coin purse upside down and put it in my hands. You know what I did? I took that money and I gave it to Greg Moore, the pastor of that church, so that nobody would think that I was motivated to do this by getting this woman's last 78 or $80. I gave it to the church. It didn't go to me. But this woman needed to give. She needed to step out. You need to do something. 
You know, I don't know what the right expression for this is, but your giving greases the wheels. It plants a seed. It just starts something in the supernatural. There are so many people that are praying and asking for help, but they aren't doing anything. They don't step out. Man, there is a powerful truth in this. I could spend weeks teaching on this. But anyway, I took this woman's money. I prayed with her. And then the next week, Greg Moore called me. And he says, you aren't going to believe what God did for this woman. This was on Sunday when this happened, and I took that woman's offering and prayed with her. On Monday, a man gave her a car. It wasn't a brand new car, but it was a good car, and it was new to her. And she didn't even pray and ask for a car. And yet a person walked up and just gave her a car, free and clear. Man, that was pretty awesome. On Wednesday, her mother called her, and her mother had been estranged from her when she started going, you know, off and crazy and went into the mental institution. It had embarrassed her mother, and so her mother had broken off a relationship, and they hadn't had communication in, I don't know, years. And out of the clear blue, the mother just called on Wednesday and talked to her and found out that she had been released from the mental institution and that she was now back to normal. The mother was touched by this, apologized for, you know, forsaking her and asked her if she would come back home and live with her. So she, she was praying for a new job and a new place to live. She got a new place to live, which was back home with a relationship restored with her mother. That was exceedingly abundantly above anything she could ask or think. And then by Friday, this woman was given a job that paid her twice as much money as she was making at that mental institution. So she got her two requests answered, a new place to live and a new job with more money. Plus she got a car, plus she got a relationship restored, plus she got twice as much money as she was making at the other place. And did you know what? They will, the people who would criticize me over taking this woman's last little bit of money, They'll never sit there and tell you the, the end result of it and see all of the benefit that came to her. And they'll never factor that in. They just look at, well, look, you took that woman's last 70 or $80. Man, you know what I did? I blessed that woman. I was giving to that woman. I was helping that woman. I wasn't taking from her. When God speaks to you about giving, He is not taking from you. He is giving to you. And did you know it not only came back to her in the physical realm with her food multiplied, but later in this chapter, her son was raised from the dead because of her giving, because of her supporting the prophet. I'm telling you, when you give, it opens up a door to you. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16 says, A man's gift maketh room for him and brings him before great men. That's not talking about just an anointing, like a teaching gift or a ministry gift or something like that. That's talking about your money. When you give, money has power in it to either open up bad things to you or open up good things to you. And this is what Elijah was saying to this woman. You give to me first because here's a promise from God, a word from God, that if you will give to me first, God will supernaturally sustain you and your little bit of meal and your little bit of oil will last throughout the entire drought. And the scripture here doesn't say exactly how this worked, but personally, just knowing what I know about God and other scriptures, I believe that this didn't just happen that one time, but every day 
when she got up. She still had just a little bit of meal, a little bit of oil, and she got up and made for Elijah first on a daily basis. And then when she got through cooking for Elijah, she went back and there was enough for her and for her son. And this just happened day after day, year after year, supernaturally God supplied. You know, most of us would like to have an entire year or decades worth of supply so that we don't have to seek God and don't have to depend upon Him. But the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. In the what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, it says, Give us this day our daily bread. God doesn't give you a whole year's supply or two years or five years. He wants you to trust Him every single day. And you need to get to where you give on a regular, deliberate basis. And God just systematically, daily comes through for you. I tell you, I'm speaking words from God. This is God speaking to many of you that you need a miracle in your finances and yet you're praying and waiting, but are you sowing seed? Are you giving? This woman needed to give. You know, Elijah was the man of God. Elijah could have stayed in the Hilton. He could have stayed in the Regency or whatever. God didn't send Elijah there just for his sake. He sent Elijah to this woman for her sake. You've got to understand that God is asking you to give, not because I need it or your church needs it or somebody else needs it. God is asking you to give because you need it. You need to trust God. And it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm trusting God. I couldn't tell you how many people come to me and they have just run up a white flag. They've quit. They've surrendered. And they may be praying, but they're just praying, you know, that God somehow or another will intervene. But they aren't taking any steps of faith. They aren't doing anything normal. They figure, what's the use? They've just given up. This woman wasn't like that. There was a place called there for her. And for her, it was out doing what God had um, told her to do. She was planning on success. And so then Elijah comes to her and asks her for some water. She goes to fetch the water and he says, while you're at it, would you make me a little cake and bring me something to eat? And this woman did say in verse 12 that she was just going to use her last little bit of food to make something for her and for her son that they might eat it and die and some people take that literally and think that it, she's just has no faith. She's expecting to die. But again, God had spoken to her. He said that in verse 9. In verse 10, she was out there doing something instead of sitting at home giving up or praying for something. And I believe that instead of her making a confession that she was going to die, she was just stating the natural fact to see, are you the one that God has spoken to me about? And then Elijah, in verse 13 said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. Did you know so many... There is a prejudice. There is a resistance against ministers receiving offerings. And you know what? I understand it. I really do, because I have been in meetings where ministers have manipulated and coerced people and... Uh, some of this is well-deserved. Not all of it, but some of it is well-deserved. And so I understand that. But did you know Elijah said, make for me thereof first. You could take that as a total selfish thing. 
that, you know, I don't care about you and I don't care about your son. I don't care if you die. You take your last little bit of food and give it to me. Some people could read it that way, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that you think exact, this is exactly how ministers operate. But I'm telling you, Elijah wasn't taking from this woman. He was giving to her. She needed to take a step of faith, and she needed to give. You know, I mentioned this on one of my programs a while back. I taught not too long ago on the power of partnership. And I went to a little church where one of our Bible college graduates lived up in the mountains of Colorado, and he wanted me to come to his church. And he only had like 20 or 30 members, and so he went together with two other churches. Altogether, there was 100 people in attendance, and they asked me to come, so I said I'd go. And when I got there, they said, we want you to receive the offerings. They didn't tell me why, but it, to me, I thought it was because they figured I wouldn't get very much money. But if I would received the offerings, I wouldn't have anybody to blame but myself. So they wanted me to receive the offerings. So the very first service, I got up and told them I just came from Charlotte, North Carolina. This had been quite a while ago, and I had just come from a church that gave me like $60,000 in the offering. And so I stood up and told the people, I said, I just came from this church. I just got an offering of $60,000. I'm not a poor preacher. I didn't barely get into town. And if you don't give, I won't be able to get out of the town. I said, I don't need your money. And when I said that, this pastor, he was sitting on the front row. You could just see the blood, all of the color drain out of his face. He, he just, it was like you killed the offering. Because again, most people think that the only reason to give is because this ministry needs your money. Now, I'm not saying that churches and ministries don't need money, but that is not the reason to give. And what I began to do is to teach those people, it's not about what I need. You need to trust God. You need to take a step of faith. And I just... I could spend weeks on this. I'm not going to do it today, but there is something supernatural that happens when a person takes a step of faith in the financial realm. I mean, it is miraculous. It is supernatural. Let me put it to you this way. I have never met a mature Christian, which you could debate what a mature Christian is, but... Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I've never met what I call a mature Christian that isn't a giver. I mean, not just an occasional giver when it's convenient, but they give off of everything they get. They give off the top, the first fruits. They don't just give if there's something left over and it's convenient. No, they are committed givers. I have never met a mature Christian who's not a committed giver. On the other hand, I have met many, many, many Christians who are nice people and they may love God and they may have had their life changed, but they're just kind of up and down like a yo-yo. They may be on fire for God now, but if I come back the next year, I'm not sure that they're going to be there. I've seen this over and over and I mean it is consistent that the people that are up and down like a yo-yo are not the committed, faithful givers. They may give occasionally, but they, they don't just have a revelation on this giving. And I believe that there's a correlation. People who are immature and struggle and are up and down and in and out, and you don't know for sure if they're going to continue to serve God next year, those people only give when it's convenient to give. 
people who give on a consistent basis, who have a revelation and they just trust God and they don't trust God one time, they don't do it in spurts. You know, the Bible says that the just live by faith. They live there. This is how they conduct their life. People like that are mature and they can weather storms and they can go through hardship. And it doesn't matter what happens. If somebody they love dies, if they lose a job, if something happens, they're still going to be serving God and they just have a commitment level. And I'm telling you, there is a direct relationship between the way you handle money and your spiritual maturity. I know some of you are saying that is not true. Let me share this passage with you over here in Luke chapter 16. I wish I had time to teach on the whole context of this, but here's what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And you know what he's talking about? If you read it in context, every verse in front and every verse behind it is talking about money. He's saying that trusting God with your money is the least use of your faith. And I meet people all the time say, Oh, I believe in God for a healing of cancer. I'm believing God for my family to be saved. I'm believing God to show me direction to make this business work. But they won't trust God in their finances. They feel like, well, I'm just not there yet. You know, that's for the super saint. That's for the super dupers. That's for the ones who want a doctorate degree in Christianity or whatever. But for us, uh, you know, entry-level Christians, I can't trust God like that. Jesus is saying trusting Him with your finances is the least. This isn't for the super saints. This is for the baby Christian. The baby Christian. And when you start trusting God, there is something supernatural that takes place. I'm telling you, I have seen this in my life. Right now, I'm in a position where I'm believing God for mega bucks. And you know what? I am giving like I have never given before. I give away hundreds of thousands of dollars every single month. And I am planting seed and I am doing things because there is a direct relationship between giving and receiving. Luke 6, 38, Give and it shall be given unto you. Everybody would like it to be given unto them, but they don't want to give. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it's around verse 6 or verse 7, it says, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. That was verse 6. And then verse 7 says, Every man as he purposeth in his own heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. You know that verse 6 says, If you sow a little, you reap a little. If you sow a lot, you reap a lot. And there's a lot of people, I, everybody I know wants to reap a lot, but they want to sow as little as they can and yet get as much as they can. You know, if a farmer had that attitude, he'd go broke. You're going to plant just a few seeds, but you want a huge harvest. No, it's just the opposite. A harvest, a farmer looks at the harvest that he wants and he plants seed accordingly. Did you know that you can determine the harvest that you get by how much seed that you sow? And I know that there's some people think, well, you can't do that. That's what a farmer does all of the time. You know, if you have X number of acres and you need this much um, harvest and stuff to pay your bills, that determines how much seed you plant. And they plant seed proportional to the harvest that they want. 
But in the spiritual realm, people all of the time are praying for this huge harvest, but they just are giving little pittance to God. Again, it's not the dollar amount. It's the proportion. It's the percentage. This is the reason that the Lord asked for 10%. He didn't ask for, you know, $1,000 from everybody or $100,000. Not everybody's able to give a certain amount, but everybody can give a percentage. If all you got's a dime, you got a penny, that's a tithe. God looks at what you have left over after you give, not just what you give. Some people that may have millions and millions of dollars, they could give a thousand or ten thousand, and yet God looks at they at their percentage, and it was very small. You know, Jamie and I heard recently some of the political figures what they're giving amounted to, and I guarantee you, it's pitiful, pitiful, with most of these people. They're willing to take your money and give it to somebody else, but they aren't willing to take their money and give to God. But I'm telling you, God looks at the percentage and, and it opens up a door for it. It just changes things when you start giving. If you can't trust God with that which is least, I believe you're deceiving yourself to think that you're trusting God for healing, for deliverance, for joy, for peace, for marriage, for children, etc. And yet you can't do that which is least. If you can't jump five feet, you can't jump ten feet. If you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greatest. So anyway, I say all of this because Elijah, he says, you give to me first. That could be taken as a total selfish thing that he was putting himself ahead of her. But the truth was, he was putting her ahead of himself. And this was God's way to bless her, this widow woman. You know, I deal with this same thing that I don't want anybody to think that I'm just after you and after your money and after the things that you can do for me. And I know that there's people that say, oh, no, that's not true. That's exactly what you are. I can't control what you think, but I'm telling you, that is not my motivation at all. I've given away, I don't even know, we quit counting, but I've given away over 50 million CDs and DVDs and books and study guides and all kinds of things. I've given away millions and millions of stuff. Over 53% of all of the people who contact our ministry don't give us a penny. They ask for these materials. We say for a donation and some people, we've had people send in a button before and say, that's all I've got. And we send it to them. We've had people send in a penny and we send it to them. But the majority, over 50%, don't give a thing. And you know what? We still supply. Not everything. There's some really expensive items that we have, but most of the stuff, we'll go ahead and give it to them anyway. If you're sitting there thinking that the only reason I'm encouraging people to give is because I'm after your money, you know, you're just wrong. I don't know how to prove to you you're wrong, but you're wrong. But I don't like to be perceived as I'm after your money. I don't like that. Man, I dislike that. And yet there's people that I guarantee you right now that you're just sitting here thinking this is the only reason I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it because these are some of the lessons that I've learned from Elijah. Elijah said, you give to me first. And some people just immediately would think this is a, total, a typical preacher just after their money. He's going to take that cake in from in between her teeth and let her starve to death. No, Elijah wasn't taking from her. He did this because it was for her benefit. You remember that story I started to tell about me being there and saying uh, I was receiving the offerings and said, I don't need your money. 
and I taught them why it was beneficial for them to give, how it was going to help them. When I left there, the pastor called me the next week, and he said, honestly, I don't remember anything you taught during that meeting except your offerings. He says, those things spoke to me, and the pastor personally had a revelation of prosperity and how you have to give and trust God and stuff, but he wouldn't say it because he was embarrassed. He was afraid people would take it wrong. And because of it, he hadn't been sharing the truth with these people. And it just changed his life when he understood that receiving an offering isn't about him and about his need. It's about the people you need to learn to give. We need to exhort people to give. This is God's way to bless you and to get His blessing to you. And so after the meeting was over, he got up the next Sunday and he got up in front of his people and he told them about how that those offering talks had touched his life. And he actually got on his knees and asked his church to forgive them, forgive him. He says, I knew these things, but I haven't encouraged you. And you know what? They gave me a larger offering than they had ever given any guest speaker. I mean, by multiple times more. And he said that when he was on his knees and asking the people to forgive him, this is after, you know, those three churches had broken up and gone back to their local church. And there was only like 20 or 30 people there. And they came up and started hugging him and saying that they loved him and that they forgave him. And they started throwing money on the platform. And this little church of 20 or 30 people paid off over $20,000 worth of indebtedness that day as this guy humbled himself and just asked for his forgiveness. And he says, it had started a revival. It changed things. I'm telling you, I wasn't taking from these people. I was giving to them. As I taught them about how giving blesses them, it just set that church free. It paid off their indebtedness. They gave me a large offering, but it paid off their indebtedness. It cemented a relationship between them and their pastor. And who knows what other testimonies came out of that. I'm telling you, this is so important. Over in Mark chapter 10, Jesus was talking about the rich young ruler. He told that rich young ruler to give up everything that he had and come follow him. And the rich young ruler wouldn't do it because he had much possessions. And then the Lord began to say, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's not that riches are the problem. It's the trust in riches. And if a person says, oh, well, I don't trust in my riches. Well, then do you tithe? Do you give an offering above that? Well, I need that. I would if I had any extra. Well, then you trust in riches. You're supposed to give the first fruits to God. And when I say things like this, this isn't because I'm desiring your money. I'm desiring to get the truth to you and to see you get set free. You need to learn to start giving. And so Jesus said, as he was talking about all of this, in Mark chapter 10, uh, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder I couldn't find it. Mark chapter 10, it says in verse 20, Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
and in the world to come, eternal life. The Lord said we would receive a hundredfold on anything we give to Him. Whether it's, you know, houses, lands, anything. And it certainly applies to money. We will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come, everlasting life. And notice it says we will receive with persecutions. I used to think that this was just talking about persecution in general. Persecution for being a godly person, being a moral person or whatever. No, this is specifically talking about persecution over prosperity. Did you know if you get to really believing God and giving and God starts prospering you, you're going to have people persecute you. Unbelievers, yes, but primarily Christians. Christians will come out against you. Christians will ridicule you and say that, boy, you're in it just for the money and you're one of these prosperity preachers. Well, do you want to be a poverty preacher? Do you want to be a sickness preacher? Yes, I preach in prosperity. I believe that God wants to bless us. And there is persecution associated with prosperity. You know, one of the statements out of a magazine that I read that just really changed my life. It says, God is looking for someone who will care more about what He thinks than what people thinks. God is looking for somebody who will bear persecution for being prosperous. And you know, I wrote underneath there, I said, God, look no further. It's me. You know, I need a lot of money in order to do all the things that God has called me to do. I've mentioned this before, but we're in the process of building an entire Bible college campus. I need about $180 million over the next five or six years. And there's a lot of money. But you know, God, just like Elijah right here, he had already spoken to this widow. But the money didn't come directly to Elijah without him doing something. He had to go and speak to the widow and say, give to me first. And then he gave her a promise that your meal won't waste, your oil won't waste until the day that the Lord sends rain. So we've already talked about how that Elijah took this woman's last little bit of food, not because he was taking from her, he was trying to get her to take a step of faith. You've got to operate in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is what appropriates what God has already supplied in the spirit realm. And so he took this woman's food and God miraculously multiplied this little bit of meal and this little bit of oil for three and a half years and sustained Elijah and her. And then it says in verse 17, 1 Kings 17, 17, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. You know, there's a couple of things here. I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to go into all of this explanation, but if you just read this on the surface, it looks like this woman is just totally upset, mad, blaming Elijah and things like this. But if you look at it closer, again, this woman was a great woman of faith. And let me go back to when God multiplied her food, He didn't give her three years supply of meal and oil. It didn't just miraculously grow all at once. But every day, it's, it says up here, let me read this again. 
It says in verse 16, And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. It didn't say that the barrel of oil multiplied and just began to overflow and the cruise of oil multiplied. No, it didn't multiply. It just didn't waste. It was always there. And the significance of this is that every single day she had to take this step of faith and feed the man of God first and then trust that there was going to be enough left for her and for her son. Now that's significant. And what it says is that this woman lived by faith. I mean, every single day for years, she would get up and make for the man of God first, and then there would be enough left over. It was just a lifestyle of faith. And so you take all of this into account, and the fact that she came to Elijah and began to talk to him about her son who had died, and Elijah took her son from him. It doesn't say how old the son was, but apparently, you know, he was small enough that he could be carried because she was carrying him in her arms and he took her out of the woman's arms and took him up to his bed and laid him on his own bed. So he was, uh, we don't know how old he was, but probably less than a teenager. And the fact that she allowed Elijah to take her son out of her arms says something. Again, I don't know how many of you think through things like this, but I've been involved in some situations. There was one time a boy that died <clears throat> and he was uh, probably 20 years old and he told everybody that if he died, I was going to raise him from the dead. We had seen a man raised from the dead in Pritchett, Colorado. He was a part of that group and so he believed that it could happen. He believed that I had prayed with this man and commanded him back to life and he came back to life and so he told everybody he had a sickness and he says, if I die, Andrew's going to raise me from the dead. Now, God didn't tell me that. I didn't know. But anyway, I was on my way to his funeral and one of his family members kidnapped me because the boy's grandmother, she was a witch. She hated me. She hated the gospel. And she was just convinced that if I went to that funeral, that I was going to stand there in that funeral and try and raise him from the dead. And she didn't want me missing with, messing with their funeral. And they kidnapped me so that I couldn't go. So what I'm trying to say is, I know that you don't come between people and, the, and their boy that has died. Boy, this is a touchy time. And for Elijah to take this son away from the mother and take the body of this son up and and put him on Elijah's bed. To me, this says something, that this woman, even though she was expressing her dismay and things like that, she also was believing God. I believe the reason that she brought her son to Elijah, instead of just going to Elijah and telling him what had happened, but instead she was carrying her son and stuff, it was like, here, you know, you have a responsibility. I have been standing here and believing God and giving to you every single day for, we don't know, but it, the whole drought lasted three and a half years. And if she was, you know, three years of it or two and a half years of it or whatever, I have been meeting your need and ministering to you. I have been depositing into you and now you owe me. Not in the sense that it's a debt, but she had sown for this. She had been putting into Elijah's life and now it was time for her to reap what she had sown. So anyway, you could read these verses and see them negatively. But again, I see in this a woman 
who was a strong, strong woman of faith. Did you know at this time, there had never been a person raised from the dead in the Scripture. It had never happened. And there is no prophecy about it going to happen. You know, today we have the example, there's eight people that were raised from the dead, not including Jesus. And uh, there is one instance that when Jesus rose from the dead, it says many came out of their graves, but it's just kind of said in passing. We, we don't have specific instance about that. There's eight individual instances that we have of people being raised from the dead. And Jesus even gave us a command in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, where he says, Go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. It's a command to raise the dead. It also says in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus was speaking and he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. So we not only have the command to raise people from the dead, Jesus said we would do the same works that he did. So my point is, today we have a precedent for people being raised from the dead. We have examples of people being raised from the dead. Our very own Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's not that abnormal. I say that, and yet to a lot of people, it's probably just like, you are crazy. You're weird to believe that people can be raised from the dead. You know, I've seen three or four people personally raised from the dead. I have uh, friends. I got one guy that raised eight people from the dead, two in one service. We've had, I've had statements, you know, in our school before and said, if you've seen somebody raised from the dead or something, raise your hand and we will have 20 or 30 people. Did you know that even though for many people, it's just totally uh, crazy for you to believe that somebody could be raised from the dead, I have seen it. I've experienced it. My own son has been raised from the dead after being dead for over four hours, nearly five hours without any oxygen and there was no brain damage. I've seen these things. It's one thing for us to believe for somebody to be raised from the dead, but this had never happened in this instance. There was no promise about it. There was no precedent for it. This was just off the charts. And yet this woman brought her son to Elijah, I believe, expecting him to do something. And Elijah took the boy out of the woman's arms and she let him go because she was expecting to receive a miracle. And then it says in verse uh, 21, And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came unto him again. And he revived, and Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him in, unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of, of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. You know, this is amazing to me. that she, I don't know that this is exactly the way it was stated here in the King James. It's not, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but sometimes you get the wrong impression reading this old English 
But for her to wait until she saw her son raised from the dead to believe that Elijah was a man of God and yet he had spoken to her and for years their little bit of food, their little bit of meal, their little bit of oil had multiplied, seemed like she should have come to this conclusion a long time before this. Maybe she was just saying this is even a greater proof. This is a greater demonstration of who you really are. But my point here is that Elijah prayed for this child and it says he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord. You know, this goes along perfectly with over here in the 18th chapter, after Elijah called fire down out of heaven and after all of the people repented and turned to the Lord, it says in the 18th chapter, uh, in verse 41, Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. You got to remember, he had called for a drought and it had been three and a half years that this drought had been going. There was no indication of rain in the natural, but in his heart, he knew that it was coming. And so he said, there's a sound of abundance of rain, not a physical sound, but a sound in the spirit realm. And in verse 42, it says, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked, and there is and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go and say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You know, I was privileged to go to Israel, and I stood on Mount Carmel, and the day that I was there, I looked out across the Mediterranean Sea, and there was not a cloud in the sky. I mean, it was just a beautiful, clear day. And I was reading and thinking about these verses, and then I looked out there, and I just looked, and I saw a cloud about the size of a man's hand. It was a graphic illustration to me of exactly what this was saying. And to see this little tiny cloud over that huge expanse isn't much. But as soon as Elijah saw that there was the slightest break out of this clear sky, there was finally a, size, a cloud the size of a man's hand. Immediately he got up and he said, the rain's coming. And sure enough, that day it got black and it rained and there was a great rain. Now, here's my point. If you go over to James chapter 5, it's talking there about praying for the sick and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. <clears throat> That's James chapter 5, verse 16. In verse 17, it says, Elias, talking about Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So this is a commentary on what Elijah did over here in 1 Kings chapter 18, the verses that I just read unto you. And over here in James, it says that he prayed that it might not rain, and it rained not for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. If you read this in 1 Kings, he actually prayed and sent his servant seven times to look out on the sea and see if there was any clouds coming up. And yet, in James, it says he only prayed once. 
So here's my point. When you pray for something, you only pray, and if it's like healing, now there are different types of prayer. If you're asking for direction, you can ask for direction multiple times and ask for wisdom and different things. If you're interceding for a person, you need to intercede for them over and over because that person has more control over them than you do, and they can X out your prayers. They can negate your prayers, and so you have to pray it again. But when you're praying for something just for yourself, you only pray once, and according to uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 24, you have to believe that you receive when you pray. Not when you see it, but when you pray. Now, if you really believe that you've got your answer, like if you're praying for healing and you say, Father, I believe I'm healed now in the name of Jesus. Well, then why would you pray and ask God to heal you again if you believed you received the first time you prayed? The answer is you wouldn't do it that way. If you pray and ask for healing over and over and over, you did not believe that you received the first time you prayed, and so you are, in a sense, invalidating your prayer every time you re-pray that and ask God to heal you. But does this mean that you just pray and ask God for healing one time, and then you just refuse to do anything about it? No, the Bible says pray without ceasing, and I believe that we should pray until we see results, but... You only ask for it one time. You believe that you receive when you pray. But then, instead of just ignoring things, you face your physical circumstances, and if they haven't yet matched up and manifested what you know God has done in the Spirit, then instead of asking for it over again, now you move into your authority, and you take your authority and you begin to speak to things. And you begin to command things to happen. Like here's some examples of different things that, you know, you may pray for a healing one time and you believe that you receive, but then instead of ignoring stuff, like at one time I had a big old ganglion cyst right here on my left wrist. And I prayed over it and I would command that thing to be healed, but I didn't see it manifest. And I just kept it under my watch band. Nobody could see it. And eventually it got so big that I had one of these expandable watch bands and that thing was expanding and pooched out because of this ganglion cyst that I had. And finally, I didn't pray and ask God to heal me again because I knew that I had already prayed and I believed that God's healing was in me and I was confident of that. But I still had the physical symptom. And one night I remember I just decided that I'm not going to put up with this. And I got to rebuking that thing. I laid hands on it. I spoke to it and I prayed for two or three hours. I don't know exactly how long it was, but I prayed a long period of time, spoke in tongues, built myself up, spoke to that thing. And did you know that it still looked exactly the same? And I went to bed and when I got up the next morning, it was gone. Now, some people would say, so you prayed over it again and again. No, I only prayed one time and believed, but I spoke to it many different times, and that was only one prayer. I believe that that's what you see with Elijah. He prayed one prayer is what it says in James chapter 5, and yet he sent his servants seven times. In other words, he only prayed one time. He believed that now it was time to break this uh, drought. God had told him at his word the drought would be broken, and so he spoke and he, he told Ahab, get down because the rain is coming. And he believed, but he didn't quit until he saw that cloud the size of a man's hand. He had to see some physical proof, some physical evidence. 
And see, I think a lot of times people will pray for something and then in an effort not to be moved by unbelief, by looking or feeling something that's contrary to their faith, they just in a sense try and ignore the physical realm. That may be more faith than praying and then looking at the physical realm and responding in unbelief. But the greatest faith is when you can pray, believe that you received when you pray, and yet you just keep speaking, you command, you say, Satan, whatever is hindering this, I command you to get off, and you don't quit until you see the physical manifestation that you're after. You know, I've got an entire teaching on prayer, and one of the teachings in there is entitled, What to Do When Your Prayers Seem Unanswered, and it takes this truth from a number of different scriptures and just expounds on it. And this is what I see over here in 1 Kings chapter 17. When Elijah went in to pray for this boy who had died, he laid him on his bed and he stretched himself upon that child three times. It doesn't say that he prayed three different times. I believe he just prayed once. He prayed and believed for a miracle of this boy coming back from the dead. But there was three different times. He laid upon him. He spoke into him. He was commanding the power of God to flow. It was one prayer manifest through many different trips, you know, ministering to this boy. And likewise, we just pray and believe that we receive when we pray. But you may have to keep speaking. You may have to go get a prayer of agreement. And there may be other things you have to do. These are one of the lessons that I learned from Elijah.